Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon so that we can do this thing, study your word, this most intimate time with you. Your son is the bread of life. He is our sustenance after all. For that we are most grateful and thankful for. That act on a cross where hung love, a love hung 2,000 years ago to make even an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message, a continuation, part 48. Uh, and we're still not anywhere near being completed. Uh, a lot of things behind us, the gospel, salvation perspective, uh, we're in transition mode uh, between the salvation perspective uh, and sanctification perspective of man. Um, so there's a lot of good things going on here. So let's not forget, again, under this title work, of the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. We are between these two perspectives. This should look very familiar to you at this point. Salvation perspectives, we spent a few lessons on it. Remember, from God's perspective, it's really saving us from sin, from the domain of sin. That's what salvation means. Anytime we hear the word save or salvation, it has to do with, and it's related to sin specifically, And it's from sin that we're saved, whether from our perspective it's positional, experiential, or ultimate, regardless of the three tenses in view from the manward's side of things. uh, It's always salvation from sin. And as we noted, and we looked at Scripture for each one of these bullets, uh, from man's perspective, the past tense is that we were positionally saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense for we humans is that we are saved daily in the experiential sense from the power of sin. And then ultimately, of course, uh, in the eternal state um, from the very presence of sin. That was our good work on the salvation perspective. The other perspective that we haven't completed, we just got started on it before we got uh, sort of sidetracked with predestination was the sanctification perspectives. Again, from God's perspective, one big picture, He sees the whole parade at once, so to speak. He's decreed it already before we were even born. The idea is that you're saved from sin and then set apart for Him, sanctified. That's what sanctified, be made holy, sanctified, set apart for His purposes, for Him. We have three phases that we can sort of... uh, carve out of Scripture, same three names, positional, experiential, and ultimate. The first phase of positional sanctification implies imputed righteousness. That's a judicial term. That means uh, you were given righteousness in the eyes of God. And then experiential, we call it imparted righteousness. It means that we are able to bear good fruit, righteous fruit, even in time, even though we still drag around the old sin nature. So that's a daily sanctification that we're set apart. He imparts, he gives us by grace, uh, through faith, experiential sanctification, good fruit. And then ultimately we are going to be completely made righteous, sanctified for him, and that's the eternal phase of things. So again, we began our in-depth investigation of Scripture regarding positional sanctification, the first of the three phases on the board and we're halted by our focus on predestination. And predestination, as you know, just means that God has certain blessings set aside for each believer. Predestination is part of um, His decree. It's part of all the things that He's foreordained. Uh, but it's exclusive. Predestination is exclusive for believers, and it has to do with the types of things that He reserves for believers only, such as blessings. So we got sort of sidetracked between the salvation perspective and the sanctification perspective for good reason, uh, to edify us, to get our 
minds on that big picture again. Whenever we spend a little time down in the weeds, we need to come back out and remember God the way God sees things. He predestined you, every one of you as individuals, to certain blessings before you were even born. That's predestination. It turns out that we've been given sort of two categories, not the only way to carve up the doctrine of predestination, but the way that he gave us this time around was through two categories. First was, by grace, you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. We spent a few lessons on that. You were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. We synthesized our good work a little further and came up with the point on the board. The fact that we were predestined to suffer. Jesus' suffering was a blessing to him. Quote, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's Hebrews 12, 2. We believers are called the same way to suffer for Christ's sake. For example, for the gospel. Some of you, we talked a lot about the practical ramifications of living the gospel life and being persecuted. If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. Quote, for to you it has been granted, that's that Greek word charizomai, Suffering is a grace gift. Suffering is a grace gift. And that really was the crux of what we learned on the topic of being predestined to suffer. Again, you, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Philippians 1.29 We made the very important distinction between what some might call deserved or just versus undeserved or unjust by man's standards. Suffering, deserved versus undeserved suffering for the sake of purity and integrity to truth. In other words, we want to always appropriate grace rightly in our lives. We want to always appropriate grace rightly in our lives. If we're going to learn about suffering and the fact that it's a gift by grace, then we have to understand which suffering we are under. And it will help us get to, or from point A to point B. Following that wonderful exercise, the Spirit turned our attention to the, quote, other side of predestination, prosperity. This is where we've been up here on the board. By grace, you were also predestined to prosper for Christ's sake. Only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. Now, this got us into all kinds of practical ramifications because of the very prosperity of the country that we live in. So that's where he's had us sort of situated in Scripture. The the key question to ask ourselves has been this. If we're discovering wealth, if we have to understand what God has to say about prosperity and wealth, think of this. Since we live in a, quote, prosperous nation... And the Word of God says He will prosper us. Shouldn't every Christian take the time to see if their definition of prosperity matches up with God's? The question being, if we don't, aren't we running the risk of thinking one thing but living another? In other words, if you have a perverted definition of prosperity, you're going to go on thinking you're living quote, the spiritual life, but you're not. You've been lied to. You've adopted a poor definition for prosperity, for wealth. You think God's been blessing you out, but it's actually been possibly the world. And that's how you're stuck. And so the Spirit's been doing this wonderful work in all of us because of the way that most of us were brought up, let's face it, the way that most of us received our first definition of prosperity, of wealth, the Spirit's been doing this great work of plucking that out of our souls. Some of you are still white-knuckling it, but He's still pulling it out of your soul. The litmus test comes to humility, or comes down to humility, as is always the case. The humble person lives for others. The humble person lives for others. Go to Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3. The litmus test is always humility. 
regardless of the topic that we've studied, the litmus test is always humility. And we know this, that the humble person lives for others. Who was more humble than Jesus? No one. And what did he do? He lived for others. And then what did he say? Greater love is no one than this, that they what? Lay down their life for themselves now, for others. Oh, that wasn't funny? <laughs> so serious. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that's a very telling point, especially regarding humility up here on the board. If you just keep reading, we're not going to, but it gets literally into the humility of Christ. Same passage, in other words, but he's got to stop here. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Describes what true humility looks like. We looked at Romans 12, 10, uh, Galatians 5, 13, Ephesians 5, 21, 1 Peter 5, 5. I'll give you Galatians 5.13 in the Amplified up here in the board. For you, my brothers, were called to freedom. Only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the sinful nature, worldliness, selfishness. But through love, serve and seek the best for one another. That's a very important verse for all of us to understand. Again, for you, my brothers, were called to freedom, so you've been set free. But is it to be selfish? Is it to take your time, your talent, your treasure, all these things that come with freedom to purchase things for yourself? Is that what this spiritual life is all about? Is that why God left you here? He said, great, you're saved, you're going to see me in heaven someday Go have a blast. Go take all the grace that I'm going to pour on your lap in abundance and go spend it on yourself. Jesus Christ, when he said the parable of the ten miners in Luke 19, said, do business for yourself. And I'm never going to come back and ask how you did business. Does that sound right? Not at all. It's literally the opposite of what he's suggesting you do. What he's commanding you to do. You were called to freedom, only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the sinful nature, worldliness, selfishness, etc., but through love, serve and seek the best for one another. Again, in the parable of the ten miners, we've read it I don't know how many times from the pulpit. Jesus says, do business for me until I return. Now here's the caveat. With his currency, which is grace. That's what the miners represent, grace. Do business with my currency, which is grace. The opposite being creature credit. So in other words, don't take, to borrow from Galatians 5.13, don't take your time, your talent, and your treasure, and go fill your pockets with creature credit. He says, do business with my grace. Don't turn my grace into a license. Don't turn that freedom into a license for the flesh. That's what he says. So, doing the Lord Jesus Christ's business, not yours. Grace is love. Now, just dwell on that. <clears throat> Stop reading. Grace is love. Dwell on that. Okay. To quote, do business with his currency, grace, is to love and lay down our lives for others. That's what he meant. Do business with my grace. By grace, guess what? Everybody go like this. Guess what? You just breathe clean air with a set of lungs that work. That's called grace. The only reason you have it is to do these things that he's commanding. To live for others. To esteem others as more important than yourself. To do business with his grace. To do business is to love. I love me. I love myself. I love my wealth. I love my everything. I love my pocket full of creature credit. Woo! Do you think that's what he was talking about? No. No. You're a slave. You're not 
running your own business. You're a slave. Do you understand? A slave has a master. And what the master says is what we're supposed to do. And if the master says, do business with my grace, then you do business with his grace for him. And as far as he's concerned, you do business for him by loving others, by showing grace to others. That's how we do business for our master. Hmm. And just imagine a perfect world where everybody did that for each other. There would never be any needs. There would never be anything. Everybody would just be blessed out by giving. And no one would have to worry about receiving. To, quote, do business with his currency, grace is to love and lay down our lives for others. That scripture, my friends, there's no escaping truth. There's no excuse for the self-absorbed. Just to get a little practical about it for the business-savvy believers out there, and I could certainly put myself in this bucket, maybe not so much anymore, but have a very well-developed sense of it, business. Doing business, Jesus' business, not yours. Attending an occasional charity event, making a donation, or doing something nice now and then for someone else does not constitute regard one another as more important than yourselves. We're talking about who you are. We're talking about the very fabric of your being, the essence of who you are. Not a checkbox and a day planner. Well, let's see, I have enough time here and enough time here. No, that's baby giving. We're talking about living for others, not making little slots and or check boxes for others. We're talking about laying down our lives regarding someone else's life more important than our own. Well, that's a mindset. That's not something that we do on occasion. That's who we are. That's where he's trying to take you. So regarding another as more important than yourselves is not a checkbox. It's not, okay, I'll go visit grandma on the weekends from 11 to 12 on Sundays. But grandma called you on Tuesday evening, said she fell down or she needs a can of soup, or God knows what grandma needs, right? And you, you were too busy. That's what you told her. You were really too tired because you were exhausted from spending all your time, talent, and energy at work. And don't say, well, I have to work. Well, what's hard enough? That's what you have to ask yourself. If you work so hard that you have no time for anyone else, think about that for a moment. Imagine if Jesus said that. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. Well, how'd they pull off the ministry stuff? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Anyone, even an unbeliever, can do those things, and does, in order to obtain more currency, which is really creature credit. So, what the Spirit's been saying, stop playing games. Stop being the dipsukos, the double-minded person. Besides, God's never mocked. Galatians 6, 7 to 8. So if you are playing games, it's going to catch up with you eventually. Here's what the Word has to say about the U.S.'s prosperity. A lot of entitled people in this country. You are not entitled, quote-unquote, to a prosperous life by world standards. That may be a shocker. But you're not. When you were saved as an adopted child, you were entitled, in plus title, title in hand, to the wisdom in the Word regarding true prosperity. That's why it says, buy from me. It's free. Eat, drink, be merry. It's free. There's no cost for this. Last time I checked, right? There's no cost for the Word of God. So that's what you're entitled to. You're entitled to wisdom about prosperity being one of the things that we all would agree upon, even this evening in this country of ours, this prosperous country of ours, that we all have a problem. We grew up in a very prosperous nation, and we're a bunch of spoiled little brats. But we like to tell each other that our prosperity is God's version of prosperity. And that's a lie. 
reflect for a moment on our beloved country. And I don't dislike my country. I love my country. It's not an issue of that. We're talking about mindsets here. These are things that should transcend regardless of location. We are the, we being the United States, we are the creators and sustainers, just think about this, of Hollywood. We are drooling saps for all that, that, that sewer pipe delivers up you know, 24 by 7. Most Christians talk about TV and movie characters more than they talk openly about Jesus. And then we trot around town to the local Starbucks and get all teary-eyed over our struggles, sometimes relating back to our favorite movie characters, not Jesus. We fantasize about, quote, making it in this world, whatever that means. Chasing wealth and achievement like a greyhound chases the rabbit and is predestined to never catch it. All for creature credit, not godly wealth. So you have to ask yourself this question, are you wealthy or poor? This, my friends, is an all-out reality check. To the degree that you put any stock in what others think, to that degree you are poor. If you think this is comical or something to be laughed off, you are already broke. That's been that little thing that he won't let go. He's like, sure. But you and I both know why you purchased, time, talent, treasure, why you purchased that thing with my time, with my treasure that I gave to you to do business with. You and I both know the truth about this, don't we? I don't care about what your, little, your friends and your little inner circle have to say about your new jeans or your new car or your new whatever this thing is, your new reputation. I don't care. You and I both know the truth, don't we? I would argue that's why some people don't pray. Because every time they get down on their knees, God tells them these things. And they don't want to hear it. Let's grab some of Solomon's wisdom on this. Go to Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. At this juncture, he shouldn't need an introduction. Let's just say he was richer than you, and he was wiser than you. Anybody want to contest those things? Okay. So let's read on the basis of those two facts. Ecclesiastes 2.1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine, while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. That's funny. For myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water. For who? Myself. From which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Sounds like some of you. I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. That means he was exceedingly wealthy. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. 
Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Very interesting how these things are juxtaposed. Wisdom and these experiments, let's call them. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. That might be your mantra moving out of this section of our studies on prosperity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon on wisdom up here on the board. Solomon was richer than you are now. He was wiser than you are too. If those two assumptions are true right now, and his conclusion after working for worldly stuff was everything is futility and striving after wind, then what say you? Then what say you? To him, it was a big experiment. Because he also had great wisdom. Is it an experiment to you? Or is it a bunch of creature credit? Is this an experiment for God's glory for you? Or is this all about you? So don't compare yourself to Solomon unless you're actually in his shoes, unless you literally mirror him, unless you have his wisdom, which you don't. So concentrate. For all of you that use Solomon as your, quote, premier example, that God prospers the godly with wealth. You need to, let's just say, finish the sentence. Let's say you need to finish the sentence. It's true. Solomon was godly and rich. But what did he conclude? 
after gaining all of those hard-earned riches. It was a waste of time in terms of godly happiness. You see, his experiment had an end goal. What, did, what was Solomon after? Money or wisdom? Wisdom. His experiment had a real end goal that most people don't have. Most people don't run to work and exhaust themselves for the sake of godly wisdom. They say, mine, mine, mine. It's not an experiment at all. It's a display of grotesque creature credit. There's a huge distinction between you folks and Solomon. Do you understand what I'm saying? So stop using Solomon as your example. You're not Solomon. You're not David either. Nor am I. So let's stop playing games. To Solomon, he was after wisdom, not wealth. So, again, he concluded it was a waste of time in terms of godly happiness, and it turned out that having all that money and stuff simply proved the point. It taught him an important lesson to share. In other words, this is his Been There, Done That book for all of us. Kind of did us a favor and then shared his wisdom. That pursuing wealth is a trap. Pursuing wealth is a trap. I'm talking about worldly wealth. If you don't believe me, then you tell me where in the Bible it is that God encourages riches and wealth for any other reason. Use plenary scripture, by the way, which means don't pluck out a verse and say, see, there it is. No, let's have a balanced diet of scripture. And you show me where the word says that God encourages riches and wealth for any other reason than to use it ultimately for the sake of others. I think about Joseph, the man who the men's Bible study has been studying out in detail. He made a lot of money through some pretty shrewd business decisions. And ultimately, how did... God instruct David to use all that money. He used it to deliver his own people, his chosen people, Israel. You see, David's wealth also had purpose. David was very humble. Did David pursue kingship? No. It was thrust upon him. He walked through doors as God opened them, sometimes reluctantly, if you remember. And then God prospered his socks off, and then what did he do it for? So ultimately, that prosperity could be used to deliver his people. Is that your situation? Is this what you go home and look in the mirror and say to yourself? All this gathering unto myself, all this creature credit is ultimately for others. Can you honestly look in the mirror and say that? That's what he's been asking. All of us. Why does God ordain wealth? God will bless the earnings of the humble person by subsequently giving them the blessing of giving as an expression of Christ-like love toward others. Both blessings are from God, the latter being the greater of the two. It's more blessed to give, right, than to receive. So if God, quote, blesses you out, the great blessing is that you use that for others. That's the great expression of love. Says, so says, you know, Jesus Christ. Hmm. A 
self-absorbed person will never understand this principle because they are too blinded by their own personal desires for wealth and what it brings to a person in this world who has it. There's no experiment for God. There's no living for others. Oh, there's a little checkbox and a day planner, but that's not living for others. That's not a heart, the heart of Christ. Do you really think that God authored your special brand of futility? Because as Solomon says, that's all striving after the wind. Do you really think that God authored your special brand of futility? You know, the one that haunts you at night when you can't sleep. You know, the one that keeps you striving after the wind. The one that wakes you up and keeps you in bondage. Yes, that brand of futility. Do you think that God authored that? Go to James 1.13. James 1.13. <clears throat> Most American Christians, so-called Christians, have a very perverted sense of wealth and why God might even ordain it. Let's put it that way. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. The question was, do you think God authored your special brand of futility? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So He's never going to tempt you into this futility. You know who's going to? Satan in the world is going to tempt you into this rat race. Which many people are hook, line, and sinker in as I speak. The world will certainly tempt you into the rat race. God won't. God's not interested in that futility. He might make a lesson out of you. He might teach you a lesson. So he might ordain it in your life because you're an idiot. But he's not going to author that. He's going to allow it. Those are different things. You want to kick open a door with your own free will? God says, kick it open. You've got a free will. You want to accept the seductive invite from Satan in the world system? It's your free will. But don't lie and say it's from me, because it's not. It's true, again, he may have ordained things to prove a point, but now here you are, Thursday evening, and the same God is pointing out that very point in your soul. He just said to you, that's right, I let you do it. It wasn't for me, couldn't have been, because the basis of it is creature credit, and the end goal is futility. So it wasn't for me, but I let you do it. So that same God is pointing it out right now in your soul. He's pointing out in your soul. And here we are. So the question, I guess, then, is what are you going to do about it? Do you have the courage? Remember, courage is just another word for faith. Are you going to put off addressing the obvious for another day? Are you? Or are you willing to address the problem that only seems to be visible when the word speaks to your heart? You know, because... You come to church, you get a lesson like this, you're convicted, but as soon as you leave, you're like, Whew, that was a close one. I almost got convicted. <laughs> no, you did. You're just perfect. You're great at avoiding it. <laughs> Wasn't for me. Must have been for that jackass behind me. You know, that stubborn donkey. Wasn't for me. God loves me. God, God knows what makes me happy. So he's just going to keep doing these things. He's going to stockpile things for me. Maybe, do you think Solomon, was there crack back in Solomon's day? 
Because maybe, you know, maybe Solomon took a few hits of crack. Maybe, uh, maybe not. Maybe it's the inspired word of God. Maybe he's trying to convict you, and you're so stinking ridiculously stubborn and fleshly, you don't want to hear it. As I'm speaking, you're trying to justify your own ridiculousness. Don't kill the messenger. Are you going to put off addressing the obvious for another day, or are you willing to address the problem that only seems to be visible when the word speaks to your heart? Or are you going to continue swimming in the world's system of thinking, being double-minded? As your shepherd, I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt what he wants for you. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? What he wants? Enough said. All of that was meant to deliver you from your own perversions about wealth and prosperity. The rest is between you and the Lord. I did my job. Some of you, there's a bee's nest right now. Let's do it. In your soul. Some of you are getting stung. Some of you running. But it's all part of the way that he delivers us. Remember where we're at. We're on sanctification. On Sunday, we worked out a few specific kinks in our souls, such as false prosperity, self-sanctifies cling to false end goals and adhere to the maxim, the ends justifies the means. Prosperity to self-sanctifiers appeals to the flesh. That principle versus the godly one. True prosperity, the righteous cling to end goals given to them by God. They are not preoccupied with having to justify the means by which grace delivers them to prosperity. They enjoy the ride. They live by faith, a la Romans 1.17. Now as we transition back to where we left off on Sunday, I believe, let's pick up some of Jesus' wisdom on all of this. Go to Matthew 6, 19. Matthew 6, 19. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 19. <clears throat> Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is Jesus, folks. Right? Red letters, yes. Yeah, I mean, listen up. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. Think of Ephesians 5, what, 18. See, it all is truth. It's about seeing it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. If you see good in you, say, I confess good. If you see ugly in you, confess, I see ugly. But you want clear vision, right, so you can actually see in the first place. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, and then the light that is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Here we go. No one can serve two masters. Dip sukos, double sold. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That being worldly wealth in view. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. I mean, I, I, I can't wear my jaw ashes. Is not life more than food? And body more than clothing? Is it not? 
Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All red letters, folks. Wisest man you'll ever read. And what did he have to say? Jesus is speaking of God's divine scale of values. The point of caution, then, is this. This has, again, another point of view or a review for us. What Satan has done to frustrate your deliverance is insert the world's scale of values into your minds, often at a very young age, and then impose a sense of unrelenting urgency to get going before someone else beats you to the punch. That's called the rat race. You can call it whatever you want. But we are given this perversion at birth. Most of the times by the households we live in. It's propagated by the households we live in. Our deliverance is in shedding, you know, all right, let me say one more thing on that. When I say that, you don't have to be rich to be enslaved to the world system. You can also be very poor and be exceptionally jealous of the rich because you are under the same system. It's not about just the rich have this problem. It's rich, middle class, lower class, if you like to think of it that way. Anybody can have this prosperity problem. The rich get puffed up, the poor are jealous, and then everybody's in between. The idea is that none of that happens. The idea is to get your mind on the things above, Colossians 3. Not on the things on the earth. This isn't about you. But yet here we are, especially in Massachusetts, right? Everybody's in a rush. It's ridiculous. Rudeness is like the norm. In Massachusetts. Why is that? What? Can you, I mean, if Jesus lived right now, what would, would he be like that? (laughs) 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 Grocery store, banging cuts. Right? Texting and driving, drunk driving, uh, whatever, you know. Spending all his money on himself. Does that sound like Jesus? Spending all his time on his own things. Does that sound like Jesus? But he's our prototype. I'm thinking right now where it says anywhere in the New Testament, make your life goal to be rich. Anybody find that? Why is it so quiet in here? You know why? Because we're all Americans. Got to get the American dream. That's a trap. Once you get the American dream, now you got to keep up with the Joneses. That's another trap. Once you keep up with the Joneses, now you got to protect your wealth. That is another trap. 
Now you can worry about, oh my God, someone's going to steal my stuff. <laughs> right? There's, there's a no win. That, that whole vector is messed up. If you could care less about your wealth, you don't even care if someone comes and steals it. Didn't we just read that? Where moth and rust destroy, no thief comes and steals it? If you don't care, then you don't care. You say, well, I was going to use that for my neighbor. I was going to use that for somebody else, Lord, but you let them take it, so that's your problem. Our deliverance is in shedding the lies we've been given from birth by seeking Scripture. Isn't that what Jesus said? Seek the kingdom first, and then all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4, 6. Go there. Philippians 4, 6. And once again, about halfway through my notes, and i got seven minutes left. Oh, well. I guess upon my return, I'll just have less prep work. Huh, that's a pastor's joke. Sorry. Everybody's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Scott knows. Where's Scott? You know what that means, right? Because I just said that. <laughs> He's going to be like, rewrite. How about 20 new pages? How about 20 fresh pages? Cocky little man. <laughs> Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, this is on you know, the point in the board to highlight, unrelenting urgency. But yet, here's scripture. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, in supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. (sighs) (sighs) Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. False urgencies, folks, appear on the board. The fruit of unrelenting hurriedness is anxiety. If you are consistently hurrying to achieve prosperity, quote-unquote, chances are something is wrong. It's quite possible you don't understand God's definition for prosperity or how he imparts it. Now, before I go on vacation, let's get back to the big picture a little bit, at least in part. Discerning end goals. The danger with perverted scale of values is that it produces wrong end goals, wrong objectives. For example, if you've got marketable talent in this world it may just be easier for you to go out and achieve worldly wealth and just call it prosperity from God this is a tremendous subtle test for people in a prosperous nation where education and training is a so called right but that's what I would argue most American so called Christians do they take all this, these so-called rights that they're entitled to just by being born in the country. And then they say, well, it's my right to do as unto myself then. Because it was my right to get the training and the education to make money that, heck, more than half the world, I don't know, maybe 80% of the world, wouldn't even fathom making. Gives me the right to throw out table scraps that would feed a family for a few days. Gives me the right to prosper myself and keep it for me and not do business for God. God, my friends, is not a puppet. So some of you need to stop treating, me, treating him like he's your personal one. You're not entitled to anything. Do you get it? You're really not. 
You're not entitled to anything. He says, yes, I've set you free by grace. I let you take that breath. Some people, from the day they're born, little babies with underdeveloped lungs, every breath they make, even if they live past one years old, is painful. Every single breath is painful. And you're complaining about what? A missed job promotion? What? A threatened uh, $400 car payment? What's your problem? You don't have a right to any of these things. You, if your mind was on right, you'd know that all these things were from God. To bring glory to Him. But that's not how we live. We say, let's make God a puppet. Let's, let's grab hold of this prosperity gospel. Let's quote David and Solomon. You know, all these Old Testament guys that are doing experiments and we're way humbler and way more wise than we are. And let's just make that our sort of the fulcrum that we live our lives on and we stake a claim to ungodly amounts of wealth. Let's do that instead. God's not your personal puppet, my friends. He's not one of many instruments at your disposal so that you can achieve your personal goals. So that's what he's been saying, folks. You have to, some of you have to discern your end goals. Where are you going? I always think of, uh, oh, I just lost his, Sykes, Pastor Maurice Sykes. When you get to where you're going, where are you going to be? Seriously, where are you going to be at the end? Suppose you do make your so-called personal goals. Where are you going to be then? You're going to be making God more promises about how you're going to lay down your life for others five years from then? Because you've got a new, newly minted five-year plan at that point too? It's like the movie The End, remember? No? Burt Reynolds? I know I said 90% when he swims back to shore. I know I said 90%, but if you don't want it, don't take it. I'll give you 10%. Is that you? That's how most people do it. <laughs> An achievement-oriented society breeds a certain kind of arrogance towards God. Its tendency is to superimpose its definition of prosperity over God's. By establishing a perverse end goal, the only thing left to do is execute the means. If the end goal is perverted, then how will the means ever not be? This is a very important set of principles, my friends, particularly for those of you who live in this country. Remember, there are lots of folks that hear these lessons overseas who aren't subjected to the same tests of faith that we are. Last time I checked, I think I showed you the 2015 statistics. There were um, 26,000-something, almost 27,000 new visitors and about 10,100-something return visitors to the website last year. And like I said, only one-third come from the United States. So that's a lot of people that don't, truly, fully get what it is that I'm having to teach all of you. So these are very important principles. And I hope you see the level, the form, and the level of deliverance this pulpit has been ordained to encourage in you. At the end of the day, you have to be willing to challenge your own current system of thinking. You have to be willing to forego any plans you may have made in the absence of this precious wisdom. And you have to be willing to accept that in some ways you may need to start over. Seeking to build a relationship with the Word of God so that it, He, can build something holy in you. Amen. Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned. 
out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.